0: Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Welcome. Welcome. Today, we're talking about the cooperative research of fishermen and scientists. We're talking about scientists working with fishermen cooperatively or in collaboration uh, to learn more about the ocean and particular uh, fish and, and animals that we're going to talk about today. Uh, my guest today is Owen Nichols, and Owen is Director of Marine Re- Fisheries Research at the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies, and that's way out at the hook end of Cape Cod. So, hello, Owen.
2: Good afternoon, Rob. Thanks for having me.
1: Well, this is uh, at the end of February 2018, and Yesterday, we had temperatures in the 70s, and today here in Harvard Square, we had um, hail coming down, um, which is kind of hard to avoid being hit on. I was glad to have a a hat on and stuff. How's the weather out there on the end of the Cape?
2: It's cooled off. It was quite warm yesterday, but it's uh, cooled off today. It's down down to the uh, low 40s and maybe lower than that now. I've been uh, inside most of the afternoon, but it looks like it's dropping out there.
1: Uh, have you seen any precipitation coming down or just?
2: It was a little bit of a mist a little while ago. Uh, it hasn't turned into snow yet, but we'll see what it does.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been another one of those years. It's a good thing about New England. If we don't like the weather, just wait five minutes. It'll change.
2: Yeah. You know, uh, it's funny. I think we say that almost every year about the weather that, you know, gosh, it's another one of these years. So, you know, gosh, what a weird year, you know, it's like change is the only constant out here.
1: Yes, Exactly. Well, I say we don't have any. We don't have bad weather here, in New England. We just have badly dressed people. True. That gets my Floridians upset. But yeah. <laughs> uh, so today uh, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to break the, the program into three episodes, or the episode into three parts. Uh, first, we're going to talk about seals of Cape Cod, you know, the harbor seals and the gray seals, and collisions with the fisheries that are happening there. Second. We're going to step back and talk of the work of Owen's work with New England Fisheries Management Council about reducing bycatch and incidental take. And finally, we're going to swing around to talk about um, long fin squid and an unexpected vulnerability for um, squid survival. That, um, and this comes back to the research, the PhD research that you and Owen are doing at UMass Boston, which is really interesting stuff, um, and it's really cool that you can, you know, be working closely with fishermen and be working on a PhD at the same time, do one or the other. So t- to start off, tell us a bit about, um, you know, work at the Provincetown Center for Coastal Studies and um, and your whole kind of general collaborative approach.
2: Yeah, so, I mean, we're a small nonprofit out here, as you know, and, um, you know, we really, we in a lot of ways, um, kind of think of ourselves as community scientists. You know, we work a lot with with local communities, um, and that certainly includes the fishing community. Um, the work that I do in particular as a director of the marine fisheries research program is focused on issues that really matter to our local fishermen, and you know, that's uh, from one end of the Cape to the other. Um, in many cases, folks that I grew up with. I'm a, a native and lived here my whole life. Um, so sometimes I get to work with people I went to high school with or their, their parents or uh, these days now some of the younger guys coming up. So it's it's really fun to be part of the community and be engaged in that way. And, you know, we really try to focus on questions that fishermen have, um, problems with problems that they face, you know, I always try to sit down with fishermen and ask them, you know, what do what do fishery managers need to know or what do you need to know as a fisherman yourself um, that you don't know now and how can we work together to answer your questions? And more often than not, it's a, it's a management question, you know, that uh, fishermen feel strongly that fishery managers aren't aware of certain information and in many cases the managers would agree. And so for us to be able to come up with a, a sound scientific way to test hypotheses, answer questions, and bring good data to the conversation of management.
1: That's so important because the fishermen are out there and there's, you know, we think we know the ocean, but it's really hard to see below the surface of what's going on. And so you get these um, people who've spent years at it who think they're experts, but the, ex, you know, but it's a sh- dynamic sh- shifting system out there. And so the observations that, Fishermen made are just fascinating and and fortunate for you to get to sit down and hear about that and then just be growing up around that and stuff. Uh, So the big issue that we're hearing a lot about are um, this explosion of uh, gray seals and then, you know, they're kind of everywhere that the fishermen don't want them to be and stuff. Uh, What happened there and, and what can be done about it?
2: Well, so what we're seeing out here is a, you know, essentially a recolonization, um, in particular of gray seals. Um, there's certainly harbor seals around seasonally as well, but um, where historically, you know, at least in my lifetime, we'd see a handful of harbor seals here and there. We've seen this influx of gray seals, a recolonization. Um, you know, these are animals that were essentially exterminated in local waters um, because they were perceived as a competition with fisheries, and you know, right up until the 1960s, there was a state bounty on gray seals, uh, such that you could get a couple bucks at your local town hall for a nose of a seal. Um, so they've been they were they were essentially extirpated or exterminated, you know, a local extinction, if you will. Um, once the, the they were protected first by the repeal of the bounty, and then um, under the Marine Mammal Protection Act. That's a federal act, you know we saw a gradual recolonization a reappearance of gray seals in our waters to the point where by the nineties they'd started to pup in waters around uh, the south of Cape Cod and you know now we have a, a large number of pups born every year, uh, hundreds of pups each year, and uh, aerial survey estimates um, of the population in you know s- single counts are upwards of eighteen thousand and um uh, there are larger population estimates in the, in the tens of thousands um when corrected for uh for diving behavior and movement so we definitely have a a large number of gray seals in our waters around the cape now and uh fishermen are trying to figure out how to uh how to work around them to understand uh you know what role they play in the ecosystem and to be able to continue catching fish around the seals
1: yeah i they're they're kind of bigger than the harbor seals. They, we call them horse because they've got more of a horse-shaped head, right? And and uh, I was also wondering if, do you think it helped that they made Monomoy a national wildlife refuge? Because it seems like most of them are at Monomoy area.
2: Well, um, you know, there are a lot of pups born in that area. they are even more born on more remote areas uh, in Nantucket Shoals, um, in between Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket, around Muskegon. So they definitely tend to go to remote areas. Um, so certainly the, the absence of development is part of it. Um, but they also like to be in areas where they can get into, you know, relatively deep water relatively quickly. You know, you see oh, that good. a lot with seals that haul out. You know, you don't find gray seals pupping on the Brewster Flats, for example, even though there's acres and yeah, acres of sand. That's a long way. You know, yeah.
1: That's really interesting. So, um, so yeah, I've been hearing fishermen complain about, um, well, the, the big complaint I was hearing was, you know, uh, a long line set out with hooks, and the seal comes along and, and just, um, cleans the fish for the fishermen and takes the best parts and leaves the rest there and stuff. Um, I can't imagine how aggravating that is, is. What can be done about that?
2: Well, you know, you know that's, a, that's a challenge that commercial fishermen and recreational fishermen face. Um, you know, we've been Friday trying to understand fish, uh, fish and field behavior around different types of fishing gear um, you know, to be able to provide information that might help you know, minimize those levels of interactions. You know, we don't you know, you don't want to see um, seals getting entangled in fishing gear. You don't want to see fishermen losing fish. You know, it's a it's a, a problem that has uh you know multiple multiple bad outcomes for seals and fishermen in many cases. So are you seeing really, that like really, um, to getting entangled in gear? Yeah, you know it's a it is a problem. From? Um with uh with uh gillnet gear with other other types of fixed gear in particular, and you do see them with uh with hooks and um you know lures and things like that as well um, that's right you know so as they raid the fishing gear in the act of depredation, they're also uh very vulnerable. Um, they're get, you know they're able to they're in many cases uh they can become entangled and even if they don't necessarily drown, they can tear some of the uh in the case of a gill net, for example, they can tear some of that net out and they essentially wear it around their heads like a necklace um and unfortunately it doesn't stretch and no you know, if it's a young seal in particular, it can actually cause a pretty gruesome uh set of injuries.
1: So to remind, so there's our an animal welfare yeah, yeah. side
2: of it as well. Um, so basically, nobody nobody wants seals around fishing gear. Is the uh, is the short version. Um, so we're you know there there are different ways potentially of deterring seals from going near nets um, or or other types of fishing gear. There's also yeah. ways of, of uh, changing how we bring the catch in, so it makes it less vulnerable to seals. So we, but at the at the end of the day, we still have a lot to learn about how seals behave around fishing gear how they first detect the fish there, uh, you know, how they approach it. And if we can learn more about that, we may be able to learn more about uh, keeping the seals away from the gear. Well,
1: it sounds very adaptive. You try one thing and if it works a little better, you you keep at that. And it sounds like all the different kinds of gear are colliding with them. It isn't just the the hooks hanging on the line or the gill net stretched between two buoys. Um, It's like everything has to, you now have a new, you know, predator in the sea and you've got to adapt accordingly. I don't think uh, seal excluders are on the board yet, but.
2: No, you know, and I mean, with some types of gear, um, you know, we, we've actually tried, you know, with, for example, with fish weirs, you know, essentially a large trap, we have tried actually excluding them with, uh, with large, you know, with uh, nets or grates and things like that, but, you know, seals are very, you know, I mean, I hate to, hate to, anthropomorphized, but I mean, they are very clever animals and, you know, I mean, they're, you know, I, I at home I have a, a few bird feeders, you know, and trying to figure out how to keep the squirrels out of the bird feeders. And it's a, a metaphor that I use a lot, but I mean, it really is. It's just like that. You know, you come up with one way to keep them out and sooner or later they figure that out and come in a different way. And it's no different with fishing gear. So like you say, you do have to be adaptive and kind of try to get, try to be one step ahead of the critters.
1: It's really exciting to hear you say the word fishing weir because we think those are still, those are only to be found up in the Canadian maritimes. But tell us a bit
2: about the weir fishery of Cape Cod, and then your work on the um, seals with that. Yeah, so I'm very fortunate to work with uh, essentially the last of the weir fishermen on the Cape. Uh, there are two two operations right now, and in many years there's just one. Um, the Eldridge family out of Chatham. Uh, some years they're joined by uh, Kurt Martin and his crew, but he hasn't been going every year. Um, but the Eldridges have been have been fishing, fish weirs in Nantucket Sound for generations, and I've been working with uh, Ernie Eldridge and his family for over a decade now um, as a scientist, as a, as a student, as crew, um, you name it. And it's a really, really fascinating way to fish. It's arguably very sustainable in the sense that there's very little uh, bycatch, there's very little discard mortality, you know, so they're basically um, very large fixed traps, you, you basically erect a fence of netting um, perpendicular to the shore that's about 500 yards long and this isn't about, uh, you know, starting in about 15 feet of water and going out to about 25 feet of water and these uh, these fences are essentially uh, large mesh nets. I mean, this is, you know, 10-inch mesh or bigger. Um, you know, fish can swim through it. Squid can swim through it, but they perceive it as a barrier. They aggregate around it, and, you know, this works best for schooling fishes or squid, which essentially shoal or school just like fish, and they'll will, they will aggregate around that fence, that leader, and they'll make their way out towards deeper water. That seems to be their natural instinct to do that, and... Via that process, they they come to the next part of that weir, that net, um, which is called a heart, and that's another fence of finer mesh um, that fish and squid can't swim through. And that heart-shaped funnel essentially uh, guides the fish into the last bit, the catch chamber, or what's called a bowl. And that's a big, essentially a big bowl of netting that's strung tightly from hickory poles. All you know, all these nets are strung from hickory poles that are driven into the sand. And the fish and the squid will mill around in there. There's about a 10 foot opening through which they could swim back out. But because of their schooling behavior and their propensity to not take sharp turns, um, they stay right in there for the most part until you go out and haul the gear. It's a very simple principle of operation. They've looked the same for centuries. You know, Native Americans built similar contraptions with sticks and, you know, some of the earliest known. You know, archaeological evidence of fishing um, are, uh, come from uh, similar types of gears made with rocks.
1: And so how do they haul the gear when they're harvesting?
2: So you actually, they, um, they use relatively simple boats that haven't changed much. Um, you know, they're diesel-powered. They, um, they're very simple. There's no wheelhouse. There's no electronics, really, to speak of, um, no masts or anything extra that sticks up. It's basically a boat with an engine box and room to put fish. And you go out and you actually, uh, you'll go around the outside of the trap first and you'll loosen all of the line that holds the bowl tight. And then you bring the boat to the mouth of it. Um, you'll close up the mouth and bring the boat right inside that bowl. So it's about 100 feet wide. So there's plenty of room in there to work. And you take the boat, move it over to one side of that big uh, 100 foot wide bowl of netting and uh, you just start pulling the net up against the boat by hand. You shut off the motor, and, you know, it's not an easy feat. There'll there'll be four or more of you at the rail pulling the nets up, and especially if there's a lot of um, algae, weed, or uh, spider crabs or anything else that's heavy in there, or if the tide's running, it's hard, hard work. Um, But you pull the boat across the bowl, so keeping the net tight against the rail of the boat until you're making that bowl smaller and smaller as you pass the net by, and you're bringing the fish into a tighter and tighter and tighter school um, to the point where you can see everything that's in there, and you can start dipping the fish out with uh, handheld dip nets. Or if there's a lot of fish, you use uh, what's called a kill devil, which is a a net hung from a a mast that's temporarily erected, and you use uh, pulleys to, to raise and lower the net full of fish. So it's, real, it's simple and it's complex all at the same time. I mean, the first time I looked at one of these nets with all the different ropes and lines and knots and things like that, I had mm. no idea how it worked. It's, it's, you know, when you think of it, it's simple. You know, there's not a lot of, you know, mechanical parts, but gosh, there are a lot of ropes and lines and nets. Mm-hmm. You know, well, now I understand it, I think, fairly well, but the first time I looked at it, I had no idea how it worked.
1: That's remarkable. Um. Yeah, well, it's, like, it's like playing an instrument. You just have to pull the right strings, the right lines at the right time, and, um, and you're, you're working the net smaller and smaller and smaller until and it's all together. What a marvelous system. Uh, I'm talking it, with it Owen really Nichols. And,
2: you know, one of the, Owen... the beautiful... Oh, go ahead, Rob.
1: Uh, we're going to have to take a short break, and we'll be right back um, after this message. Sounds good.
0: Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
3: On a Cape Cod shore, 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead, killed by a harmful algal bloom. The town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water. They restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforoceans.org. That is www.donate, the number four, oceans.org. G.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science.
2: Become our friend on
1: Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America.
0: listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer.
1: Hi. We're talking,
0: I'm talking with Owen Nichols,
1: and he's been talking about fishing weirs on Cape Cod. And now that we've got the uh, the fish all corralled in the weir, there, we're going to break away from that. And I'm going to ask um, Owen, um, how can people um, learn more about your work? And actually, I'm looking at your web page here, and it's just got some fabulous photographs that I invite people to uh, check out. If they, you know, while they're listening, even.
2: Yeah. So um, I mean, certainly look for us on the web: uh, www coastalstudies.org um, we're also real easy to find on Facebook and Instagram and I think we even have a Twitter account now we're uh, ke- keeping up with the times here hmm
1: and if people want to reach you
2: Owen uh, what's the best way to do that uh, email is great uh, Nichols, Nichols at coastalstudies.org um, and I believe and then you can information- find my contact information on the website as well Exactly. So on the
1: website as well. And I'm sure that you can respond to messages through Facebook and stuff like that. So Absolutely. here we go. We've got all the fish in the net and now let's tell us about the fish coming out of the trap
2: yeah so the as they bail the fish out of the the net you know they have uh they have the dip net, so they have the kill devil, which is the big net from the boom and one of the beautiful parts about this is you know these fish are all free swimming in the net up until the point that the net is uh pursed up, so you know everything in there has been handled minimally you know they're they're essentially wild free swimming fish right up until the point where you put a net on them and In many cases, so if we look at the trap and there's a lot of small fish in there, you know, little butterfish or scup, things that are too small that we don't want to bring in, all we have to do is untie a few lines and you can actually let the entire catch swim out. So, you know, one of the issues in many other fisheries is that you have a lot of bycatch and discard mortality of small undersized fish. You know, you can essentially undo a few knots and let several tons of small juvenile fish live to come back and grow. Um, so that's one of the beautiful parts about this fishery and what you do land, what comes on the boat is really, really clean. It's in good shape. You know, it hasn't been beaten up along the bottom in a, in a trawl or a dredge, you know, it's really, really clean product. And so, um, you know, markets and seafood consumers will pay more for that product. So it's, it's good for everyone. That is great that they can go back to the, the, um,
1: uh... You know, the artistry work of, of weird netting and, um, and have a superior product at the same time. It's rare to find those two coming together. Indeed. And they've been doing a so lot, lot to get that
2: work. product right to the consumer. They were the first folks to have a community-supported fishery out on the Cape, and they continue to provide fresh product to, to individual customers as well as uh, the larger markets.
1: So community-supported fisheries, does that mean people buy shares?
2: Essentially, yep. That's how they started it, very similar to a CSA in agriculture. Um, they've shifted their model a little bit where now they um, they have essentially a mailing list um, where folks can get fresh fish uh, essentially every day rather than just a, a share. Um, they've tried a couple different approaches over the years. but This
1: is really an important message for all of you listeners who want to eat fresh seafood is check around to see if there's a community-supported fisheries that you can join up in in your area because it's the best way to help the fishermen out and, you know, have a market
2: ready when they land their catch. And it's a great way to have a dialogue with your fishermen, too. You know, if you have questions about how the product is caught, the relative sustainability of what you're eating, you know, you have usually a unique opportunity to talk very closely with the fishermen in many cases, so... You know, you're much closer to where, you, where and how your fish are being caught than when you go to a, a grocery store or, so, or a restaurant. Yeah, exactly. And I, you know, I'm sure that
1: fish tastes better when you know more about it, how it was brought in and stuff. Um, just the provenance of it is just really interesting stuff. Uh, let's talk about um, uh, your work with um, the New England Fisheries Management Council to reduce bycatch and incidental take um, using methods other than fishing weirs.
2: Yeah, so we've been doing a lot of different work um, that aligns with the council priorities um, supported by the Salt and Stall Kennedy Grant Program, the NOAA Bycatch Reduction Engineering Program, and other, other federal groups. Um, You know, we're really trying to reduce the effects of fishing gear on non-target species. So we've been working with uh, fishermen out of uh, Provincetown to modify scallop dredges to reduce uh, bycatch of flatfish, uh, in particular uh, yellowtail flounder and other other flounders, Mm. um, trying to come up with ways to keep them out of the dredges. uh, So when uh, there's a low abundance of these fishes around, and we need to conserve and protect their populations that we're not impacting them with the dredges. Um, So we've been working a lot with the State Division of Marine Fisheries and individual fishermen on that, putting cameras on fishing gear to see how it interacts with the bottom and with different types of animals, and that's been one of the really, really interesting things is uh, to put uh, cameras on the dredges and other types of fishing gear. It's uh, one of the things we do a lot here because it really creates a unique opportunity to learn new things together it's pretty powerful when you have fishermen and scientists clustered around these video screens and they're watching the dredge on the bottom. And, you know, I had an opportunity to be on a sea scallop boat with, you know, probably a hundred years of collective fishing experience among all the different crew on board. And none of them had ever seen what their gear actually looked like moving along the bottom. And certainly as scientists, we hadn't seen that either. So we were all really, really excited to observe it together in real time um, we had a, a video rig where we could actually look down on the dredge from above as it was being towed along, and it was fascinating.
1: And has the uh, have the videos led to any gear modifications? Were you able to see things that you could make do differently?
2: Yeah, one of the things we were experimenting with is um, is uh, hanging uh, tickler chains from the front of the dredge in order to uh, reduce uh, bycatch of fish. So, in other words, the chains are out in front of the the catching part of the dredge, essentially, and the idea would be that it would it would tickle the fish so they would move out of the way, much as uh, in a flounder net it tickles them into the net. This is the opposite, same principle, (laughs) but applied in a different way. So instead of a a sweep that moves the fish in, you're trying to do the same, but moving them out by a physical stimulus. Um, And so we were able to observe that in action, observe how the chains were contacting the bottom, or in some cases weren't, and adjust our designs accordingly. Um, So it's really, really useful for that. Um, for kind of tuning your modifications to fishing gear, um, and just visualizing things that otherwise you really just don't have a chance to see. I mean, you know, no one in that wheelhouse had seen that before. It was pretty cool.
1: Now, do these scallop dredges have the the teeth that poke down to get them to flip up into the net and stuff?
2: No, no. These ones just have a, a pressure plate. Um, oh, good. You know, there's uh, there's a, there's chains underneath. Um, but you know, it's it's really the, the action of the dredge moving along the bottom and the pressure that's uh, created by the pressure plate, the little wake um, that, that that tends to move the scallops up in. Um, it's different than a bay scallop dredge, which in many cases has those teeth.
1: Right. These are offshore scallops, uh, which tend to be larger than the bay scallops.
2: Yep. Yep. These are sea scallops, so these are much larger. The dredges are much larger. Um, you know, very very similar principle in a lot of ways, but. Larger dredges, uh, larger target species, so it's, it's scaled up in a lot of ways from the base scallop fishery that we think of inshore.
1: And um, it's all sandy bottom, right, that these guys are working?
2: yeah, yep. by and large, sand, and sometimes there's a bit of mud and things like that, but usually it's uh, sand, not a lot of structure yeah. there. You, know, you, you, know, you can't fish with it, there's a lot of big rocks and other things, and scallops as a rule don't, generally don't want to be there.
1: Well, as you know, the Ocean River Institute, or me, has been working with uh, the fishery councils as well, and I was testifying about how we shouldn't open up the furthest reaches of Georgia's banks and American waters to the scallop fishermen. And the scallop fishermen were saying, oh, you've got to because otherwise the scallops are going to die of old age out there.
2: <laughs>
1: and fortunately, we have lots of scalloping waters closer in that are being sustainably fished. Is that your situation, too, is that you think the scallops are pretty sustainable?
2: Yeah, I mean, there, we've, there's a really good model there for management um, with respect to the sea scallop fishery where you have um, the rotational management, so different areas are being opened and closed based on very good data, uh, much of which comes from the School for Marine Science and Technology, uh, the s group at UMass Dartmouth down in New Bedford, working with mm. the fishing industry. You know, they really pioneered the use of video surveys to come up with um, uh very discrete abundance estimates for different areas and that's really gone a long way um to making the fishery m- more sustainable those uh surveys have had wide application now throughout much of the range of the fishery um but it's all started out of New Bedford and so that's been a good model for cooperative research with the fishing community providing the data for research and really being used to to uh, manage the fishery in what's what's to date been a, a pretty sustainable way
1: this is really great that you're looking into the scallop fishery because we've been hearing about uh, ground fish and so forth, and yet, you know, the, the scallop fishery is probably more valuable now than the ground fishery um, because... Absolutely the, you know, it is, yeah. Yeah, and so that's really important. I I learned that, you know, a couple of years ago, they, were, they put cameras on the haddock nets when they were trawling for haddock, and they found that the cod and the flounder would we also swimming with the haddock, and they would go in one direction, and the hat, like toward the bottom, and the haddock would go to one side. And so with that knowledge, the fishermen were able to modify their gear and practice. So now we're sustainably fishing haddock with less bycatch incidental take of those cod and, and uh, flounder, I guess it was. Uh, so this is really exciting work that, that you and others have been doing, and it's, it enables us to eat seafood guilt-free, that we're not worried about, you know, destroying a species, um, if it's on the market.
2: Uh, well, let's, things like the, these gear modifications are really powerful because it lets, it lets the fishermen, you know, make decisions on their own, essentially. You know, they, they're developing these innovations. They're working with us to test them. You know, it's a, it's a little bit different in the sense that, you know, it's, it's not that a scientist gets an egg-headed idea and goes out to the fishermen, but, the, you know, these, a lot of the ideas that we're testing are kind of homegrown ideas that come from the fishing community, and they're partnering with us. To test them, so it's, it's much more powerful in a lot of ways, because you have a lot of folks vested in the work, it's transparent, it's participatory. So.
1: It's fabulous collaboration, where you provide the, the tool, the, the video camera, to see what's going on, and, and the fishermen just run with it. And uh, that's so exciting. it the, the comes out of the collaborative, cooperative you know, research of fishermen working with scientists. I know that uh, one thing dear to your heart are the uh long fin squid. And uh, um so tell us a little bit about, you know, your research on because this is this is the uh the focus of your, your PhD research and, and uh, we're also interested in some of the natural history of the squid and, and the fisheries, the inshore fishery for squid.
2: Yeah, I mean squid are fascinating critters, you know, I've been interested in them ever since I was a little kid. Um and you know, my focus when I started my PhD was to really look at how environmental factors affect distribution of fish and squid, you know, when and where they go and why. And squid were a really good example because they're commercially important. They're high value species. They're relatively short lived. They only live about a year. And so when you think of trying to understand how environment affects when and where they go, that's already a complicated enough problem. When you look at a fish, usually you have fish that have very different life history patterns at different ages, you know, little, little ones do different things than big ones, even though they're the same species. And when squid hatch, I mean, they're essentially, they're, they're, they're a a miniature squid. They're just a few millimeters long. They're still part of the plankton early on, but they function just like an adult squid. They do all the same things. They're visual predators. They're very active hunters. Um, and as soon as they can swim and move and migrate, even though they're little, um, they're basically functioning just like an adult squid. So, um, from that perspective, trying to understand how temperature and oxygen and other things affect their distribution—that was a, a good candidate for me to study. know, behaviorally, they're complicated. Um, there's lots of other things to consider, but you know that was one of the reasons why I chose them for a study specimen, and. So a lot of the work that I do, again, actually, was in the weirs to start. Um, You know, one of the beautiful things about fish weirs is you can bolt lots of instruments to them because they're a fixed trap. They stay in the same place every year. (laughs) They're uh, hauled every day. So you can put all kinds of instruments on them, and they don't go anywhere. If you lose one, chances are it'll be in the net. So (laughs) it's a little bit different than working offshore. Um, So every one of Ernie's weirs that – you know, has basically been the same way, the same design since at least the 1800s, um, now gets a modern, um, at a minimum, a temperature sensor, and in many cases an instrument that looks at uh, salinity, oxygen concentration, and so forth. So you have a daily record of catch, um, both what's hauled in and what's let go, um, as well as uh, information on all the associated environmental factors. We now have over a decade of temperature readings and catch data, and it's become a powerful tool to look at Um, environmental effects on when and where the animals go.
1: Wow. Well, what are you learning? I mean, we know that there's variations with the seasons, and we just tie the temperature to that, but are you seeing, you know, micro-responses to, uh, is there quite a bit of fluctuation in temperature and oxygen?
2: Yeah, you know, and it's funny, so when when I was early on in my work, and you know, we were recording information on wind and temperature and all these different environmental factors, and I was very proud of myself. I had this great figure of uh, water temperature and squid catches, and I went rushing off to show that to Ernie. And Ernie's like, "Well, that's great, but you know, my, my grandfather knew that, you know." Yeah. Um, and so it wasn't until we really started uh, digging into things like oxygen concentration, and then how wind and oxygen and tide and all of these things play in together Um, that it really started being a complete picture because a lot of times, even though we knew that temperature was a driver, it didn't always match up. And then when we realized oxygen played a major role, at least in shore, that made a big difference. Um, And you see different patterns of temperature preference for different size squid, too. So that's another part of the equation that you have to think about um, but one of the cool things about that is when you have a data set that spans cooler to warmer water over the course of the season, a wide range of uh, levels of oxygen, of different uh, wind patterns and things like that, you really have a good, robust view of how environment affects their catches, uh, much more so than if you just do a short sample from a trawl or things like that. Um, So it really tells you a lot more. And then you can take that information, you can paint a picture of what the animals prefer for temperature and oxygen and things like that. Then you can scale that up. So if we know something about water temperature across the continental shelf, for example, or what the water temperature might be in 30 years, you know, you can start making larger scale population level inferences about what the animals are going to do. And so that's kind of where we're at right now is trying to take that information, look at things like, uh, you know, when and where the Gulf Stream is in a given year and how that affects when and where our squid are going to be. You know, squid are very boom or bust in a lot of ways, and certainly any squid fisherman will tell you that. And so we're trying to unravel on a scale of years now why that is and if there's different larger-scale environmental factors at play there.
1: Holy smokes. So it isn't like the temperature... Goes up and the oxygen goes down. That as the oxygen can vary differently than the coming of summer
2: in warm water. Yeah, so there's other driving factors with oxygen. Um, in inshore, in particular, we have these uh, algae blooms, and you know it's kind of a it's a very filamentous algae. The fishermen call it mung. And one of the things about mung is once it starts to break down, it it will start to rot, essentially. And and as it rots, it sucks the oxygen out of the water. So it's not just the seasonal warming pattern and the change in the ability of the water to hold oxygen. um, But then you add this other issue of uh, decomposing uh, algae that's pulling more and more oxygen out of the water column. So you have to factor that in as well.
1: Uh, Once again, we've run out of time. We need to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, um, what Owen is, is alluding to is how the, the, so much oxygen gets used up that this portion of seawater has become called an ocean dead zone uh, because there's no oxygen in there. And So we'll talk some more about that after this break.
0: dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science
3: on a cape cod shore 16 striped bass fish and a horseshoe crab were found dead killed by a harmful algal bloom the town blamed excessive lawn fertilizer for polluting the water they restricted lawn fertilizing to once a year. The state overruled, mandating five times a year. Though the striped bass died on a Falmouth shore, fertilizer pollution is a national problem, clogging our waterways. If you believe in our rights to clean water and beaches, if you want to stop the killing of fish by excessive fertilizer, please join with us. Make a donation for responsible stewardship. Acting together, we can have clean beaches and more fish. Please visit www.donateforocean. That is www.donate the number four oceans.org.
1: Think you've seen everything there is to see in online television? Let us surprise you. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv today for sports, health, business, and more on demand 24 7.
0: listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at one 472 5788 Again, that's one 472 5788 You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Owen Nichols, from
1: the Center for Coastal Studies in Provincetown. Owen, oh, um, how can people uh, follow along, or what's the right website and stuff?
2: Uh, you can find us at www.coastalstudies.org, um, and we're pretty easy to find on uh, social media as well, Facebook, Instagram, and now Twitter. That's great.
1: Uh, this is really interesting stuff. I urge you to visit his webpage, uh, the Coastal St- the Center for Coastal Studies webpage because it's just chock full of really interesting information. Um, Owen was just explaining how that, at times, uh, the nutrients uh, in the water, and I think a lot of those nutrients are coming off the land, uh, cause the algae to bloom, and the algae, when it dies, eats up the oxygen. You'd think that algaes would make more oxygen, but not when they're decomposing, and that that can um, pretty much suck out the (laughs) oxygen from the water, and create um, what is being called a ocean dead zone. Uh, the Casco Bay keeper told me of once seeing striped bass chasing bait fish in Casco Bay, and they swam into an ocean dead zone and just rolled up dead because there was no oxygen in there. And, and, Owen, you were telling us that you've been able to put oxygen meters on the, the weir nets, and um, what kinds of fluctuations are, are you seeing and... Um, Yeah, I mean, some of the particulars there. Or what's unexpected that you're seeing there or
2: something? Yeah, I mean, I don't think we realized how low the oxygen actually can get. I mean, we witnessed essentially anoxic events at different times over the years that we monitored oxygen at the traps. And when that happened, the squid catches just dropped right out. Um, So, you know, I mean, squid need to be able to breathe. They need to be able to respirate in order to perform, to swim, to do what they do. Um, so, you know, low oxygen concentrations are really going to reduce your catches. Um, so that's something we just, we didn't realize how low the oxygen was. We hadn't really measured it there before. Um, now we have ongoing water quality work that's being done where, um, there are oxygen readings in the area, um, through our, uh, our uh, water quality monitoring program here at the center. But uh, back then, uh, we didn't have any readings from the fish weirs until we started putting instruments on them. And, you know, these are very close to shore. We see really low um, oxygen levels at different times over the course of the the spring and early summer. Um, Another thing to consider, too, when you have this uh, material in the water, whether it's uh, living algae or decomposing algae, you know, I alluded earlier to behavior being important for squid. You know, Nantucket Sound is a spawning ground for squid. You know, squid um, mate; they lay their eggs. And squid are very visual creatures. You know, they're they're a lot different than a lot of other mollusks. You know, they need to see one another. They communicate using their skin. Um, and I don't know that much about behavioral ecology of squid. Um, our colleagues down at a Marine Biological Laboratory have been studying them for decades, and you know, they know how they communicate with uh, by showing different signals with their skin and things like that. And there's a lot we don't know, but it is fascinating. And they, they do need to see one another to mate. And when that water is so turbid, so cloudy with uh, material, they can't see each other. And our colleagues in uh, South Africa have shown that a very similar species of squid, the catches go right down when you have a lot of uh, turbidity, a lot of material in the water. Um, and that's arguably due to the fact that they need to see each other to reproduce.
1: Wow. So not only... My, if low oxygen will keep them away, but if the water is not transparent enough, it uh, has a negative effect as well this, The oceans are complicated; <laughs> they sure are <laughs> um, and so uh, tell us a bit about your research in terms of um, the importance of the um, the, the egg place the, where they put the spawning habitat of of long thin squid.
2: Well, for the last decade, we've been collecting uh, fresh squid egg masses. Um, you know, squid will will deposit these uh, what we call egg masses or mops because uh, they actually look a bit like the head of a spaghetti mop. You know, they're huh. anywhere from about a few inches to garbage can size on the seafloor. Um, and multiple female squid will deposit these eggs. Multiple males will fertilize them, and you get this big gelatinous mass of strings of squid eggs. And, um, you know, they'll often attach them to a, a substrate, um, a rock or a net, in our case, um, in the fish weirs. Um, and when they spawn around the weirs, um, we've been able to collect fresh egg masses. And we know how fresh they are because they weren't, weren't there the day before because you're hauling the net <laughs> every day. Um, and you can monitor the embryonic development of the squid inside these egg masses over time. So we would, we would put them in little cages right next to the weirs and uh, observe them by, uh, by sampling the egg masses every few days as they grew. And so you could look at uh, growth rate relative to water temperature and other environmental factors and uh, know about how long it was going to take for them to hatch. And one of the reasons that's important is because, you know, the squid need to survive that time in order to, to, uh, to make it into the plankton and have a chance of living. Um, and there is concern about what happens to those egg masses if they're on the seafloor when a, a net comes by or a dredge or another type of fishing gear. There's a lot of trawl fishing uh, in squid spawning habitat. And some people have raised the concern that, okay, if these egg masses are dragged up off the bottom, if they're disturbed, if they're broken up, if they're dislodged from the seafloor, um, you know, what happens to the squid, the squid eggs? You know, Do they survive or not? And that's something that we don't know the answer to um, but we've been trying to find some funds to work with uh, some of the the mobile gear fishermen, uh, some of the trawl fishermen, to actually try to understand the effects of uh, of fishing gear on these squid eggs, to see if they do in fact survive um, if they're caught in a net and put back overboard and so forth. So there's more work to be done there. We've uh, we've come up with a good way to monitor them uh, once we have them, but we need to uh, we extend that out to the to the trawl fishery and see if we can understand the effects of of crawling uh, during spawning on that particular life history phase.
1: Well, you were saying that the squid eggs need a holdfast fast to, you know, be set on, and much of Nantucket Sound is just shifting sandy bottom. Uh, are there yeah. hot spots for breeding squid or something?
2: Well, so that's a, that's a very good point. You know, I mean, that's sort of, that's what you find in the literature, is that squid attach their eggs to structure of some kind. But like you say, a lot of where, These squid are in Nantucket Sound. I, you know, I think we need to do, um, do more examination of the bottom habitat where the squid are actually laying their eggs and see what kind of structure the egg masses are on. You know, we find them inshore attached to things, but, you know, I, I I think that's a a key part of the puzzle. You know, we assume that the eggs are attached to some sort of structure, but like you say, it is a dynamic area in many cases. Um, now there are parts of Nantucket Sound where the, the water is less Less uh, dynamic and things like that, but you know, I, I think we do need to understand whether these egg masses are just rolling around on the seafloor as it is, or whether they're attached to something because that certainly makes a big difference.
1: Yeah, and the sound has an, an unusual high, you know, currents going, you know, laterally
2: compared to you know, Kitkut Bay or something. Yep, yeah, I mean the currents in between. Uh, um, the islands and Monomoy and Nantucket and things like that, I mean, they rip right through there. You know, there are places like northeastern Nantucket Sound where the weirs are, where the current isn't that strong. But in between the islands and other places, that current just rips along there. So um, that's certainly something to keep in mind. And, you know, if the squid eggs are dislodged and then they find their, themselves in that current, where do they go? So lots to learn. Yeah,
1: I know. My son and I sailed out to, um, out of Tatuit down to the uh, weather buoy um, halfway to Nantucket, you know, where they were looking at the conditions for a windmill on horseshoe shoals. And of course we got out there and the wind dies and we're there in the hair off 12 and a half. And so okay. luckily I had a paddle with me and because we had to paddle to shore because um, you could look up at the water towers over, I don't know, Yarmouth or something. And you could see them marching off to the right because the tide was sucking us down to Woods Hole. Or something. So it, it's a very dynamic system of, um, of tides and currents and and good luck with the reproduction of the squid out there and stuff. Um, so this is basically going to translate into kind of working up maps that'll inform the uh, fishermen where to trawl and when to
2: trawl. Well, you know, it it could get extended into something like that if the fishermen want to use it that way. I mean, right now we just want to understand, uh, when and where the eggs are and what, what happens to them, um, But if we were able, if we, um, discover that there's a significant negative effect of trawling on the eggs, like they do not survive if they're disturbed, you know, that's information that we could provide to the fishing community. And our, you know, fishermen recognize that next year's squid are at stake. You know, they only live a year. And I think that's one of those relationships that I think fishermen understand very well is that if you're killing the eggs, you're not going to see squid. Um, so I, I don't think that will be a hard sell. You know, it's not necessarily about, management coming in and closing off entire areas as it might be about fishermen being able to make informed decisions on their own. You know, I think it's a very, it's a very clear relationship between eggs and adults.
1: Yeah. The fishermen have been really good about, um you know, they set up this whole Western Gulf of Maine closure area um, uh, up in the Gulf of Maine because they were worried about the ground fish and stuff. And so they they were good about that. And I imagine that, you know, there's just going to be portions of the Nantucket Sound that are good for uh, uh, squid eggs and a uh, squid nursery, like, and uh, that's going to become an important thing because it has to operate every year. You can't just, you know, have it every seven years or something.
2: Absolutely. So lots, lots to learn there for sure. And I think it's one of those things. You know, a lot of folks have brought that up as a concern. You know, uh, that's an area where we can engage the fishing industry and help help answer their questions.
1: Yeah. Another thing is that this talk of windmills is the way I saw the windmills going out in the water there was to provide more hold fast for the marine life. And, uh, just going out to see that weather, um, tower, uh, there'd be a couple of fish hanging in the lee of the tower and stuff. So, um, there are negative aspects to putting, you know, stanchions out in the sea, but there's also, um, the, there's scarce real estate for good hold fast out there. And so there's you know a lot we can do with, uh, that or with artificial reefs or something, once we, as your research is guiding us to better understand, you know, what are the needs of uh, these commercially valuable uh, species. Absolutely. Wow. Well, we've squandered our time, and <laughs> here we <laughs> are running out of time. Um, Owen, oh, thank you so much for. Um, t- um, well, how about some closing remarks?
2: Um, well, it uh, certainly it has been a been a pleasure to be on with you. You know, it's, it, like you said, time kind of flew by there. I, uh, I love what I do, and I love talking about it, and I really love, uh, you know, working as part of the community that I'm in here. Um, you know, we're out here on the Cape. We're learning a lot of things together as a, as a collective here of scientists and fishermen. Um, there's a lot more to do and a lot more to learn, and, you know, we're just going gonna to keep at it, keep trying to answer complicated questions as best we can. And yes, exactly.
1: Thank you. And the Ocean River Institute is trying to help fishermen. And we have a national campaign where we ask you to please eat fish once in a while, you know, substitute a hamburger for a fish sandwich or whatever. The more people eat seafood, the more our government will help better manage the seafood industries uh, and help the fishermen out because it's not just a, a Cape Cod issue. It's a national issue that we need to do this. And when you go to have seafood, Try to find the local seafood, and when I go to the the supermarket, I always ask. The, I always look at what else, what what's new or what's least expensive. The least expensive fish, other than tilapia, is uh, the one that's the most abundant. It's being brought in by the fishermen, and they would really appreciate it if you bought that instead of cod, tuna, salmon, or swordfish. Uh, so please, um, you know, and the the fishermen, salesmen, will will love the fact that you. Um, that you show interest in more of the fish and stuff. So, Owen, thank you so much. Uh, My guest is Owen Nichols from the Center for Coastal Studies. Thank you, Owen.
2: Thanks for having me.
1: And thank you all for listening to this other, one more episode of Moyers Environmental Dialogues. Until next time, please take care of yourself and then try to help us take care of this planet as well.
0: Thanks again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll talk again then.